making right now, just double it. Just double it. I can't double your height, Leonard. I sorry about that. I need every man in the house uh, just just to say uh, something. What'd be something good to say for me? What's uh, like something manly? What's something manly? Ura, ura. All right, all the men, count of three. Ura. No, not hua. No, ura it is. Ura it is. I, I pick. All right, all the men. One, two, three. Ura. All right, sounds good. I'm gonna need your help today. I'm talking to men. Uh, now, I don't want you to think that, ladies, I'm leaving you out. I never leave anyone out. I'm, everything I talk about will be part of you, what you can be helpful to you as well. But I do have a mission. It's one we've been on uh, myself, and I've been talking to some other men throughout the last several months, uh, a mission for this year. And that's just to raise up men of God, an army, so to speak. Uh, this series that we're starting today, um, it, it was initially my plan was to start in January, but I felt like the Lord really wanted us to learn about prayer and repentance first, that we would need those two things to delve into what we're talking about today. A um, couple things you should know. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Michael, and I just go by Michael. If you want to call me pastor, that's cool, uh, but I, Michael works too. Um, I'm a father of eight sons. I tell that a lot, so you probably know if you've been here. So when I talk to men, I have a vested interest in it. Uh, I have a lot of sons that I want to see make it safely and strongly and victoriously into manhood. If you are here and you love a man, you have a husband, have sons, have grandchildren, or there are, are men in your life that you want to see do well, then I'm, I'm sure there's something in this message that you'll find that you can help us in this ministry and this mission with. There's another part you need to know, and that is that I'm a, a stage in my life where my relationship with my own father has changed, and uh, he's going through some health issues. And so as a son of a father, I'm, I'm entering a place that I did not anticipate. I unrealistically did not anticipate. So I'm uh, exploring my, my dad's story and trying to understand it better with the eyes of a 50-year-old man as compared to the son who was 20 and 30 and so forth. So that being said, I want to start with a, a little bit of a story about my dad. My, my father was born in 1949 in, in poor, poverty-stricken Hickman, Kentucky, uh, South West Kentucky extreme, almost into Tennessee. My mother's from Tiptonville, just 10 miles from there, 15 miles from that area. Very poor, very, very poor area. My, my mom, my dad grew up in a house, a, a two-room shack, and that's not an exaggeration by any, uh, by any stretch. My dad took me to see it once when I was a, a teenager. It got, it got plowed down not long after that. And uh, it, he, it was falling down and, and looked terrible and overgrown. He said it looks about the same as when I lived there. <laughs> he said we could actually feed chickens through the floor of the house. Didn't have to go out in the winter. And so they grew up very poor with not a lot. They were sharecroppers. And so they would basically farm someone else's land and give them a portion of the proceeds to uh, rent the land to grow crops on. That was what my, my grandfather and grandmother did. Very, very poor way to grow up, and my dad's stories of boyhood are rambunctious and exciting, and I wish I had time to tell you a few of them. Uh, let's just say he was a very courageous young man. 
But about 17, 18, he had already quit school at that time. He got his GED later and went on to college, actually, with uh, what he had learned and earned in the military. But um, he had quit school at the age of 18. He joined the Marine Corps. He volunteered. He wanted to beat the draft. That was what he said. I, I don't know. He just decided to join the Marine Corps. He was the first Marine in our family on either side. My, uh, his family was all Army, and uh, my mom's family was Navy. And so he wanted to be a Marine which I know the Navy guys are going, well, he was just in the Navy. Don't say it out loud. There are a lot of Marines here, and you'll get hurt. <laughs> just saying. <clears throat> anyway, so my dad, um, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a good, bittersweet place in life when you get to a place where you can look on what your father went through with the eyes of someone who's been through that stage a bit. So my dad was 18 when he went to Vietnam, for a 13-month tour. He was there in 68 and into 69. Historically, 68 wasn't the best year in Vietnam. We were just learning, we we're still learning what we had to deal with. 69 things were a lot more aggressive, but that's when the Tet Offensive occurred, and my dad was there for just the first part of that. So my 18-year-old father, uh, about halfway through his tour, is stuck on a, a beach with his platoon. And they're cut off by North Vietnamese regulars, which is, uh, they were the ones who knew what they were doing. And uh, as I talked to him about it, I didn't hear the story until about 10 years ago. It was one it took him a while to get around to. But my dad got, their platoon was cut off, but he ended up getting cut off from them and uh, was under sniper fire. And as he's telling me the story, He's telling me about hearing his buddies yell at him, Maynard, get out of there. Maynard, get down. <laughs> and as he's telling me the story that they finally got out of through air support and the grace of God, he's telling me the story that time, you know, when you have eight kids, you've always got someone who's close to the age of 18 at home for a while anyway. I'm looking at my son. It may have been Kevin at the time who was about that age. And I'm imagining him in a battle situation. And then I'm looking at my father. And it was a new day for me. It helped me understand so much of the toughness and the brokenness that I have witnessed and loved in my dad's life. As I bring that into this message that was part of my dad's a growth, a stage of growth in my dad's life. So we go through this series, I want to look at four stages of growth. There are more, there's five, and it depends on what your resources are, that you could find more, I'm sure. I'm not going to deal with the boyhood stage in this series because I have a, a different interest. My, my goal is to, is to raise up men and to help men see the need to enter into battle for the kingdom of God. So if that scares you, good. You shouldn't be afraid. You should charge on. You ever... Sorry, excuse me. I better not go there. But today we're talking about the stage that John Eldridge calls and, and, and others call the cowboy stage. And it's that stage between early teens and maybe mid-20s, maybe almost 30, where a young man is coming to terms with what it means 
to be a man, what that looks like, what the identity of masculinity is. I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but he's trying to come to terms with that. And so today I'm going to look at some things that, one, we're going to look at David's life, and for all of us as men, we're going to, to find in it some things that help us identify what masculinity is. We'll just look at three today. We'll look at more throughout the series. And then for you young men and for you fathers and for your grandfathers, and for those of you who have any opportunity, mothers, sisters, uh, um, influencers, to pour into boys' lives, this is for the, those boys that are in that stage. I want you to know what needs to happen or what some things we need to look at in that stage. And I'm going to use David's life. I'm not going to dig into all the stories. I'm just going to basically pick mountain peaks and show you what his life was like as he was in that stage. Does that make sense? So that's what this series is about. Today we talk about the cowboy. The next week, we, next week we talk about the warrior. The third week we talk about the king. And the fourth week we talk about the sage. So yeah, this series is aimed for men. Ladies, if you're sitting there going, oh man, I won't get anything out of it, you'll get plenty out of it. Just chill. And if I could also be so bold or frank or honest, or your husband, your son, your dad needs you to understand the battles that he faces. And I know men need to understand the battles you face as well. And I hope to help them see that through the series. But I hope this will be very informative to you. So, let's get started. And we're going to jump into David's life. We're going to try and learn a bit from King David. And we're going to walk into the day of his life that is really the first chapter of his story in the Scripture. We don't know. Most theologians think that the story today, David was somewhere between 10 and 13 years of age. That's kind of the ballpark that they think he was in. What happened was King Saul had blown it. He was the king that Israel wanted, but he was a failure as a king. He was insecure. He was afraid. And he lived his life out of a place of fear and not out of a place of knowing God. And he wasn't a man after God's own heart. And so God came to Samuel and said, Listen, I found someone that's after my heart, and I want you to go and anoint them as king. And so Samuel, who's the prophet, the last judge of the nation of Israel, which was a major transition for them uh, from Israel from the time of judges into the time of kings. And so Samuel goes to Jesse's house where God leads him, and his job is to anoint a king. He's going to pour a flask of oil over someone's head today. And so as they get there, Jesse shows up. All the, all the boys are there. It seems like all the boys are there. The Bible says this in 1 Samuel 16, 6. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, Surely this is the Lord's anointed. This is Jesse's oldest son. And... <clears throat> Hang on just a second. I've got a. <coughs> I have to cough a bit today. I have a bit of a cold. It turns out I'm allergic to my wife. And anyway, verse seven. <coughs> I'm just kidding. She has so much mercy on me. Sorry, I've got the words mixed here a little bit. But the Lord said to Samuel, "Don't ju don't judge by his appearance or height, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart." So I want you to remember this. When, John, when Samuel sees Eliab, he sees uh, someone who looks fit to be a king. The tall, dark, and handsome. You know, the Mel Gibson-looking guy. This is the one, the brave heart-looking one. And Samuel's like, that's probably him. But God says, no, it's not an appearance thing. It's not an appearance thing. Man, I need you to let that plant and sink in your heart. We move down a few verses. Then Samuel asked, 
Are these all the sons you have? He's gone through all of Joseph, uh, David's brothers, and, and uh, none of them are the one that God said that's the one. So Samuel says, is there another one? They're still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down and eat to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. This is the moment when a 10 to 13 year old boy gets anointed to be king. He, with that anointing, is given a purpose from God. And I want you to pull a couple of lessons from this, everybody, but especially you men. First of all, I want you to know that biblical masculinity, being a man of God, a man after God, is never about appearance. It's not about a mask. It's not about a costume. It's not about the way you present yourself. It's always about who you really are. This is important because it's easy to lie and easy to wear the mask and easy to put out there the version of you. But you have to understand biblical masculinity. A man after God is authentic and is real because God can see past that. There are enough posers in the world. There are enough people out there pretending to be something that they're afraid they could never be. And I want you to know God has a real identity for you to live in. You don't have to be afraid of that. You can be who you really are. And so it's never about appearance. The second thing I want you to see from the story is that David was anointed with a purpose. David had a purpose. And because David had a purpose, he would have a mission for the rest of his life. Now, that purpose was to be king. And when he became king, there would be an extension to that purpose. He would move into a, a, a preparation phase for the next generation as well. But what I need you to see here is that because we see in David's anointing that, that a man of God has a purpose, and that purpose is not the man himself. Okay? It has to be more than the man himself. Now, you may be sitting there going, well, listen, Michael, I've, uh, you know, I don't know about this God thing. I mean, I want to be saved. I want to go to heaven, all that kind of stuff. But I don't really know that I have a purpose. So I'm here to tell you, you have a purpose. Okay? You have one. How do I know that? You have a purpose because you have been anointed with a purpose and the reason I know that you've been anointed with a purpose is because Jesus was anointed with a purpose. Now you're sitting there going, Jesus, me, not the same guy. Hang on. Okay? Are you hanging on? Of course you are. All right? The Bible says in Hebrews 1, it's a verse directed and speaking of Jesus. Hebrews 1, the Bible says, verse 9, God has anointed Jesus, anointed you, pouring out the oil of joy on you more than anyone else. Several weeks ago, my wife was sharing with me her morning devotion, and she was reading this awesome promise out of the book of Psalm. And in that promise, she's reading it to me, and as, I, as she's reading it to me, I'm like, man, that promise is for Jesus. That's a promise to Jesus. And I'm like, 
there's a part of me that's like, well, since it's Jesus' promise, it's not my promise. I was arguing with the promise. And it was like God said to me, he said, no, you don't get it, Michael. All the promises were to Jesus, and all the promises were fulfilled in Jesus, and Jesus lives in you, so all the promises are yours. Okay, he's like, Michael, I don't think I agree with you. All right, it's good. I'm glad you're arguing with me. This is good back and forth we're having here. <laughs> so in 2 Corinthians 1.20, verses on the screen, listen to this. For all of God's promises, say all, all. have been fulfilled, say fulfilled, fulfilled, in Christ with a resounding yes. Say yes. yes. And through Christ, our amen, say amen. Which means, yes, ascends to God for his glory. So you get it? Jesus said yes to the promises. Jesus fulfills all the promises. All the promises are in him. And then the day you said, I trust Jesus, my Lord and Savior, I dethrone me and I enthrone him, surrendered to him as my Lord in my life, he moved in via the Holy Spirit. And now all the promises are in Jesus. And he said yes, and they're in me now. So I say, hallelujah, amen, bless God, praise the Lord, they're all mine. So if Jesus has an anointing, and he does, I have one. If Jesus has a purpose, and he does, I have a purpose. Does that make sense? So guys, what does this mean for us? I'll tell you what it means. I cannot just survive until I die. I cannot just say, all right, I'm a Christian now. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to be nice. I'm going to put in my weekly duty. And then hopefully when I die, I'll get to go to heaven. That is a stupid way to live. I'm not trying to insult you. I'm just saying, hey, there's more. And if there's more, you should reach for more. What if God is in heaven right now and he doesn't want you to survive? What if he is in this room right now and he's saying, I want you to have more. I got this huge feast for you. I want you to enjoy the feast, not sit there and starve waiting on something that's already yours to, to receive. That makes sense? And so... We realize that David was anointed, had a purpose, and how does that fit into us? What does this mean for a man of God? A man of God has a purpose. He has a purpose. He has a mission. He has something to accomplish in this life. has something to do. Now, I need to make a little clarifier here. David was between 10 and 13 years of age when God had him anointed with oil among his brothers, by the way. That's important. He didn't just take him out behind a tree and do it secretly. He was with his other brothers when he was anointed. It's 10 to 13 years old. It would be 25 years before he would be king in Hebron, and, another 30, and it would be 32 years total before he was king over the whole nation of Israel. 25 years. How many of you know that God's always playing the long game? When you get a promise from God, when you get an encouragement from God, and you don't see it fulfilled in a day, a week, a month, or a year, that does not mean God's promise is void. It just means God is playing the long game in your life. He's investing in you, and he has a mission and a purpose for you. And you may, it, it may take, it took, I would say it took 25 years to get the shepherd boy ready to be a king. And so... Don't let go of those promises. A man of God has a purpose. So guys, I want you to have that. 
All men in the room, as we, get, as we get started in this series, I want you to know you have a purpose. I want you to know what it is, okay? Next, excuse me. A few years later, five to seven years later, there was a war. Saul was king. The armies of Israel gathered to face off the Philistines. And you know the story of David and Goliath to some degree, most likely. And in that story, the, the army of Israel is standing before the Philistine army, and a nine-and-a-half-foot-tall giant comes out and basically says, let's go one-on-one -on -one here, and whoever wins gets all the marbles. Now, the nation of Israel sees this one champion, Goliath, and they lose all courage, they lose all hope, and they change the game plan. And part of that had to do with Saul because Saul was not a leader who led for victory. He was a leader who was trying to protect what he had. Now, you guys that love sports, uh, football, basketball, how many of you know that whenever a team starts playing to not lose, you know they're about to lose? Because the goal changed. They went from winning to not losing. And the only thing that your mind and that your body know when you say not lose, it doesn't hear not, it just hears lose. And so the nation of Israel is standing before this giant, and they're not trying to win anymore. They're just trying to not lose. And they're about to lose. It's a bad day. Jesse sends David. He's about I guess, at this time, about that age, to the battle to take supplies to his brothers. He gets there. He hears about the giant. And he starts asking the one question no one's asking. What happens if we win? What happens if we win? What happens to the guy who takes out the giant? I want to know what's the, what's the reward for victory here. I tell you what, that's a mindset we need to gain, isn't it? We need to stop worrying about how not to lose. And we need to start pursuing and seeking victory, which we'll talk about in just a minute, okay? So this is what happens. It shows up. He gets there. David's asking around. His brother the one that got passed over, the Mel Gibson looking one, you know? You're like, how do you know, how do you know it looks like Mel Gibson? Because it works for this sermon. That's how I know. 1 Samuel 17, when David's oldest brother Eliab heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. Do you see that Eliab had issues with David? There were some problems going on there. You just want to see the battle. Verse 29, David's answer. Boy, it sounds like a classic little brother answer for you guys that had little brothers. He says, what have I done now? David replied, I was only asking a question. It just sounds like something my little brother would say. Actually, he wouldn't say anything. He would just torment me. Uh, but that was, that was my brother. <clears throat> Excuse me. I apologize for the sniffles today. You know, Eliab's looking at his brother and he's jealous. Jealous of David, his younger brother, because of maybe because of the anointing, but also because of the hope. David's the only voice of hope, and he's not even in the army. He's the only one looking at the situation and seeing the potential for victory. And, and so it, it angered his brother. And his brother criticized him, and his brother saw in him things that weren't actually in him, which is, happens a lot, I'm afraid. So, there's an important lesson I want you to learn here about hope. First, I want you to know that a man of God has hope. I heard Steve Backlund say a few weeks ago, 
and it's stuck with me, it's resonated with me, and it's proven itself to be true. He said, he who has the most hope has the most influence. Wow. And so I want you to understand that a man of God has hope. What, what do I mean by that? It is easy to stand in a world that's broken, to talk to people who are broken, and believe that the brokenness will continue. I, I've done it many times. I've looked at people, met them at different stages of their life and of their trials, and I've looked at their pattern and their decisions and, no, and known this pattern, this way of living life is going to produce generally these kind of results. And I've told them, this is, you're doing this, this is what's going to happen. I, I do that a lot in sermons. You, you can't live like everybody else and your life turn out different from everybody else. It's not going to happen. And so I've done that. But here's the thing. David looks at a situation that looks like certain defeat. And instead of seeing the defeat, he saw the hope. Instead of asking the question of how do we not lose, he's asking the question of what's the reward if we win? What, what's the hope here? What happens in the place of victory? Man, dads, granddads, men who get any kind of influence in, men, in young men's lives or any man's life. It's easy to call out the facts, but we need to learn to call up the hope. To speak to the hope in people. Sure, it's easy to see a failure, but do you think that's what God sees through the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of his son? Do you think God looks at people and sees all their mistakes and all their failures? Or does God look at them and see their potential? Amen. See what? He paid the blood of his son for every human being on this planet. That redefines the value of a human life to a level that's beyond your comprehension. God says every human life is worth the blood of his son. That's valuable. That's treasured. That's precious. And so we need to learn and grow in this idea of hope and becoming someone who can see the hope in other people. Just seeing what's wrong with them isn't actually helpful, but seeing others as God sees them, that is powerful. So a man of God has hope, and a man of God has purpose. And then the third thing, and this is important and kind of foundational to the whole series, and it's about victory. Excuse me. 1 Samuel 18. So the whole deal with Goliath made David a bit of a rock star. And he ends up serving the king and serving the king well. Let's read this. When Saul... Whatever Saul asked David to do, David did it successfully. So Saul made him a commander over the men of war, an appointment that was welcomed by the people and Saul's officers alike. So David was doing well. Saul, Saul, Saul saw something in David that was valuable and was a blessing and a strength to his kingdom. So that's good, right? It, it was until it wasn't. When the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They got groupies here. That's cool. I always wanted groupies. 
I got one. Thanks, baby. <clears throat> they sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. And this was their song. <laughs> Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Saul was a very insecure and fear-filled king. And now the groupies love David more than Saul. This began the rift between Saul and David, which we'll get into next week or the week after or some point time. What I want you to see is this. David was defined by his victory, not his failures. Why does this matter? I'll tell you why it matters. Men of God are called to win battles. We are sent out to be victorious. And that's something we need to understand. This idea of following Jesus that is, I don't know, holding back, reserved, hiding, it's not correct. We are here, men, boys, we are here to do something that matters. We're here to do something bigger than we can do, more significant than we have the strength or the intelligence or the ability for right now. And that's what we need to understand, and we need to move Christianity from this nice place to a good place. A change from where we are being nice to everyone to a change where we are fighting for the good for everyone. We need to move from sitting on our couches to fighting in the war. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so that, yeah, amen, that's right. <clears throat> David spent his youth watching sheep. He spent his youth protecting sheep from lions and bears that were forever patrolling his flock looking for lunch. And we get stories that tell Saul about the time that he, he defeated a lion and he defeated a bear. And that's pretty impressive, okay? And I want you to know that we live in the same kind of scenario, men. Peter tells us this in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering that you are. What if we raised our boys to understand the reality that, yes, they, they, will, they may become fathers, have families, have businesses, uh, what careers, whatever they do, but all the while there will be a predator orbiting everything they do, attempting to destroy that thing, attempting to wreck their family, wreck their career, wreck their finances. They'll always be there if we could teach them that that war's always going on and then also teach them to have a heart like David that knew that even though there's an en enemy orbiting, there's a God protecting. And if we could begin to live with fearlessness instead of going out going, man, I hope the devil doesn't get me today and begin to walk out into life going, man, I know God's got me today. 
then I could begin to make a difference and I could charge into situations that are hopeless and I could have hope even though I might not have skill, might not have resources, might not have what I need, but I still have the hope of God. I can face any Goliath. If we had an army of men like that, we could change things. By the way, I'd like to say to you ladies right here, that biblical masculinity, men rising up to be men, will create a culture and a society in which true femininity can thrive and grow. The greatest enemy to, to being a woman in our world today is the insecurity and fear-filled hearts of men. So you fill their hearts with courage and hope, and they can release their wives and daughters to be warrior princesses for the king. Amen. <sighs> <sighs> So, a man of God has got to have a purpose. He's got to have hope. And he's got to know that he's here to win. Now, let's transition. What can I do for my sons? It's a question every father asks. And I have many times. How can I help my son move from boy to man? Because... I have seen a lot of men who had the body of a man, but were still boys. And I do not want that for my sons. I want my sons to know how to love and cherish their wives, not use them. So how do I help them? What do they need to know? So let's start here. We need to understand that the point of being the, of the cowboy stage, that development stage, is that a young man has to learn to rule himself. This is the, the first and the most critical battle every man has to face, to be in control of himself. Now, guys, you know about that. You know, they probably taught you in, in, in some kind of education class about testosterone. All you know is you were mad from a 12, and you haven't quite got over it yet. <sighs> So you, you have to realize that ruling that is critical. Learning how to find healthy and constructive outlets and uses for that is important because God made you that way for a reason, because he made you to win wars, not sit on couches, okay? And so we, we have to learn that, and our sons have to learn that. Son, and so dads and granddads, that's the conversation you have to have with your boys. You have to rule yourself. You have to be responsible for yourself. And that conversation can take a lot of shapes. In my house, it was a lot of this. Son, I am raising you to leave. I would point at their mother, and I will tell you one day about some of those youth-filled conversations. Well, almost all of my sons have had a conversation that went like this. You will not talk to my wife that way. And then it went downhill from there. But... um. They, you know, they have to learn how to control themselves. And, and, and I would tell them that I married her because I wanted to be with her. And I love you, but you're out of here. And so, <laughs> Joshua 1.8, <sighs> study this book of instruction carefully. You know, I think every young man, parent, you would be well served to teach your sons these verses, okay? And have them commit them to memory, actually. Study, study this book of instruction carefully. Meditate on it day and night so you will be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. 
This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let me say this. Becoming a man is not inevitable. It's not just going to happen. A young man has to have... A, a, a man in that cowboy stage, he's got to have some things to leave it, to grow on and out of it, to learn to rule himself in it. One thing I learned about when uh, having sons was the, the main thing, what boys understand. You, you parents, you, you boy moms, dads, you ever tried to reason with your son? Son, just take out the trash. Mom will not go ballistic. We'll have a peaceful night. Easy. No, Dad. We must have war. There must be war tonight. Okay. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's, so the boys learn best from pain, I guess. So the Spartans, you've probably heard of them, saw the movie The 300, uh, maybe. They had a system in place that was renowned in the ancient world and still written about prolifically today, they would take a boy at seven years of age and he'd begin a 13-year process into manhood that was planned. It was filled with education. It was filled with uh, learning about etiquette, learning about values, physical training, military training. Uh, One of the things, uh, they would learn weapons and and all these kind of things, but one of the things about their program, uh, and and I'm not condoning it or or any of those kind of things, Uh, I'm not trying to elevate the Spartans, but they did at least understand that the The journey from boyhood to manhood is a journey, and it needed to be understood. It needed to be supported and recognized. And we don't do that anymore. We don't really, we just kind of think, well, they'll grow out of it. Well, they will, but what will they grow into is the question we got to ask ourselves. Their their training ended with a one-year period where a young man spent in isolation. He was basically, it was a one-year-long survival hitch, you know, And, and then when, if he survived, and that was an if, but if he survived, then he was welcomed in the community of men and began 10 years of military service. And uh, that, was how, that was how they did it. Now you're sitting there going, well, that's, that's, pro- that's kind of harsh, yeah? It may be harsh, but it acknowledges things that we need to acknowledge, that boyhood into manhood's not a given, that it's something that needs to be assisted, something that needs to be supported. And so I want you to understand that. So young men, you, you guys are in that stage as you're, the, you're in your teenage years now, and you, you, whatever you're dreaming about for the future, I just want you to know it's not a given, man. It's not inevitable. If you don't work on this thing, you, you have to invest in your masculinity, okay? So how do we do that? Well, first of all, you've got you to gotta prepare for this. I really believe we need to get very intentional. I believe we need to get very intentional with our sons and with the men in our lives about preparing. So prepare for manhood. The Bible says this, Proverbs is a lot of wisdom from a father to a son. And it would be a, a, you'd be well served, parents, to help your, especially your sons, but your daughters as well, to read Proverbs on a regular basis. Just filled with good parental wisdom and it can come from somebody outside of you and, and it will help a lot. Proverbs 4.23. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Avoid all perverse talk. Stay away from corrupt speech. Look straight ahead. Fix your eyes on what lies before you. That sounds just like a father talking to his teenage son, doesn't it? Mark out a straight path for your feet. Stay on the safe path. Don't get sidetracked. Keep your feet from following evil. 
I can just, I'm sure I had this conversation with my sons. Look at me. No, look at me. Look at me. Straight ahead. Focus. Come on. You got to prepare for this thing. It's not going to happen by accident. I believe God had, God planned for us to have a season in our life. I call it singleness. And I think most of us waste our singleness. What singleness is for is for you to learn to pursue God with passion. That's what it's for, okay? Most people waste it pursuing romance, pursuing relationships with other people who are just as immature as they are, okay? And so instead of asking the question, let me speak to you young guys for a second. Instead of asking the question, can I get the girl, why don't you start asking the question, do I deserve the girl? Am I worthy of a girl like that, okay? And if young men could begin to invest in themselves to become a person of significance, of character, of values, then our women in our society would be much better served. They might actually find a husband who was ready to be a husband when they got married, okay? They could, you're like, Michael, you're really countercultural today. Well, culture stinks. We, we're doing it all wrong. Anyway, um, so... Use that singleness to pursue God, to really go after him. Because he's the one that matters whether or not you please. He's the one you should please with your life. If you don't live to please him, you'll live to please everybody but him. And that will drive you nuts. Because there are people in your life who are going to see things in you that are their faults and their flaws and their weaknesses and try and correct them in your life, and they may not even be there. And so you, you have to live for a different thing. Now, you have to live to please God. Live for an audience of one. If you do that, and remember to be gentle. You don't have to be a jerk. You know, I know people who live for God in a very jerk fashion, and I hate that. You know, just you can be kind, you can be considerate, you can be compassionate, but live for God and don't be manipulated. Another thing I love to throw out there and I try to teach this to my sons is I, I want you to be a good man, not a nice one. Nice men are manipulators. Nice men are trying to get something without telling you what they're trying to get. Okay? And so be careful. Okay, now to you. I, I got to do it. To you ladies out there that you are looking for a man. One, find him in the right place. If you found him on a bar stool, would you just cut that sucker loose right now? <sighs> like, I'm married to him. Okay, that changes things. <laughs> I'm just saying. Seriously. You're like, Michael, you're being mean. I don't want to be mean, but I want you to have a, a great marriage, and I want you to have kids that are raised and, and have great lives and are filled with God in those lives. And so we need men to rise up and be it, and so we need men to be good men. It was not a nice man that killed Goliath. A, a nice man would have made him brownies or something. Let's play checkers, Goliath. Whoever wins gets it all. It was a good man who loaded up his bag with rocks and went out and took out the enemy of his people. Yeah. And that's why we need good men, not nice ones. And so to you, to you young men and you boys out there that are still, you want to, to be a man, you don't know what that is yet, you just realize you're going to do good in the world, not be nice. Okay, different things, different things. And you have to prepare 
for that. Also, prepare to be a man who's worthy. Also, I better throw this in here, dad advice. Becoming a man requires men to invite you into manhood. If you want to be a godly man, a godly man will have to take you there. That's what I'm saying. Boys will never make men out of boys. You can't hang with the turkeys and fly with the eagles, okay? Does that make sense? Another thing, and this is not meant as offense, ladies. You, do, you have an amazing role that's amazingly critical in your son's lives. But no woman will ever make a man out of a boy. A man has to do it. Okay? You may disagree with me. Feel free. I'm not even going to poke fun at that. But I believe that to the bottom of my soul. And I believe that based on what the Bible teaches and my experience as a father and my relationships with men. It took a lot of men. By the way, I had a great dad. I have a great earthly father. But I have had at least 30 men take the time to mentor me and give me the various tools I've needed throughout my life. So guys, you may not have sons at home right now or you may not have sons at all. That does not cut you loose. We still need you to raise up a generation of godly men. Amen? <laughs> Prepare for manhood. Second, very important, and I promise you'll be out of here before uh, winter's over. Winter's over. <laughs> I was going to say before the storm was out, but you know it looked like it slowed down out there. Proverbs 5.1. Man, I wish every young man could hear this. I, I wish we could share this with our sons. Proverbs 5.1. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen carefully to my wise counsel. Verse 3. For the lips of an immoral woman are as sweet as honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. Oh, she's fine. So hot. Verse 7. So now, my sons, listen to me. Never stray from what I'm about to say. Stay away from her. Don't go near the door of her house. If you do, you'll lose your honor and will lose to merciless people all you have achieved. Man, I'm telling you, guys, until you learn to love and cherish a woman, my father was great at teaching me that, you will only be able to use one. I'm going to say it again just because it was painful. Until you learn to love and cherish a woman, you will only be able to use one, and that is not okay. And it makes you open to being manipulated by her. You have to gain control of that lust that's within you. Bottom line. If you're going to rule yourself, you have to rule that. You can do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not trying to beat you down for your failures. I'm just telling you what has to happen I want you to have the hope that God can help you make the right thing happen, but you have to understand, you have to rule over your lust. David failed in this area. And he ended up in a, a, a horrible relationship that produced murder. A child ended up dead in the process. And we'll get into it in a couple of weeks and look at what God brought out of the situation. But because he could not control that part of his life, he did major damage to his family and, and, and literally went to war with his own sons because of this issue of lust. So get this thing under control. Parents, you got to remember if you got sons, somewhere around 12 or 13, that hormone's dumping in their system. 
and it is the violent hormone, okay? It's difficult, but they have to learn to deal with it because that is something, it's a gift from God that God used to make sure our races continued, but also so that we'd have defenders for our people, okay? And so it's an important thing, but our sons have to learn how to manage it. So this is important. You've you got to prepare for manhood. You also have to learn to control yourself. And then the third thing I want you to understand, and, and this, I want to end on a good note here. Guys, prepare, control yourself, but never forget this is about winning. This is about victory. And so the Bible says in Proverbs 24.10, if you fail under pressure, your strength is too small. Rescue those who are unjustly sentenced to die. Save them as they stagger to their death. 1 John 5.4, every child of God defeats this evil world, and we achieve this victory through our faith. Young men, understand. Fathers, mothers, grandparents, we're raising up a generation of warriors, and they're out there to win, and we're here to teach them how to win, how to even snatch victory from moments of defeat. You know, you can win battle, or you can lose a battle, and still win the war. And we're in a situation right now where Christ has actually already won the war. There's no missing the ultimate victory. But we're going to go through battles. And you can learn how to snatch victory out of every one, even if it takes you down. If you go through a battle and you lose, but in that battle you find a faithful friend, you have attained a victory. You go through a battle and you lose, but you attain a skill that you did not have before. You have snatched victory from defeat. Does that make sense? And so everything that our sons go through, they're going to win some, they're going to lose some. And we're going to celebrate their victories and also help them find the lessons in the victories. And then we're going to carry them, encourage them, push them, pull them through their defeats and help them find the victory in the defeats. But in the end, it's always about the victory. We're more than conquerors through Christ. And the only way you conquer is to enter the fight. It isn't enough to just participate. There are no participation trophies in this deal. Okay? This is a war, and it is on. And this is why we need men to rise up and fulfill these roles, to do what they're called and equipped to do. So this, the cowboy stage, an important stage, and in that stage, the cowboy has to learn, must learn, or will learn. He learns his purpose and his hope and his victory come from Christ. This is what he learns. Now, I'm not trying to overwhelm you. There was a day as a parent that I looked at the task before me and I just said, God, I can't do it. I'm not smart enough. I don't have enough skills. I can't get it right. I'm too angry. I need to grow in this stuff myself. I've been there. I'm still there. The issue isn't how overwhelmed you feel. The issue is, will you stand up, no matter how overwhelmed you are, and ask God to empower you to fight one more day? To stand up one more day for your kids? To go to prayer one more time? To, 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 to stand behind them and see for them the hope of their Father God rather than the natural consequences of the dumb decisions they might be making right now? Can you do it one more time? Because that's the job. 
God put you on earth and said, Michael Maynard, you shall be a man. And being a man, you will fight battles. You will attain victories. You will take your battle scars. You will not do it alone. But that's what I have for you. And that's what God has for your husband, your brother, your son, your grandson. It's not an easy calling. I'm not saying that being a woman is an easy calling. I'm just saying we respect each other's challenges is all. And so, man of God, pursue God with all you've got. Rise up into this battle. Teach our sons, the next generation of sons, whether it's your son or not, that there is a war going on. There is an enemy orbiting, but there's a God protecting. Take steps. As I conclude this sermon, and we're going to pray, I want you to know that Michael, and I'm not sure who else is going to be over here, but at least Michael, if you men would like prayer, just because being a man is challenging, Michael's going to be over there. Jason, why don't I just put you over there too? I know we were talking about doing the back, but Jason's going to be over here too, and Jason's leading a ministry right now called 180 Out, and what we are trying to accomplish with that, and it'll take time, is that we're trying to build a community of men that can call our sons into biblical masculinity. And so Jason's going to be over there, and if you aren't in the loop on that, get a hold of him so you can be. Let's pray. Worship team, would you come up? Father, thank you. I love your word. I love what you teach us. I love the fact that we live with just absolutely indomitable hope. And so I pray that you would help us today to be faithful in bringing up our sons. I pray, Lord, that you would raise up men right now that would be willing to be a spiritual father to spiritual sons too. That could have the courage, man, the courage to love somebody and the courage to invite them into something greater than they can see in themselves right now. And Lord, I pray for my boys. Their dad had a lot of weaknesses and a lot of failures. I pray, Lord, that you, as their father, would overcome all that I failed at. Thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.